Um, well, um, good morning, everyone. Um, I guess good afternoon and good evening as well, depending on where you might be tuning in from. Uh, my name is Tatiana Jasli. Welcome to this virtual event under the National University of Singapore's Middle East Institute Salon Series. Under the MEI Salon, we run a series of special events conducted in a casual, relaxed setting aimed at making Middle Eastern culture more accessible to everyone. Um, in this virtual setting, we hope you're all tuning in from the calm comfort of your home, office, faculty lounge, cafe, or wherever else that is tranquil and relaxing. We're very glad to have with us today, Professor Aneka Lenson, Associate Professor of Global Modern Art in the History of Art Department at the University of California, Berkeley. Very good evening to you, Professor. Uh, Professor Lenson is tuning in uh, from the evening in uh, Chicago. Professor Lenson uh, specializes in modern painting and, contem and contemporary visual practices with a focus on the cultural politics of the Middle East. She is currently on the editorial board of Art Margins and is a faculty affiliate of Berkeley Center for Middle Eastern Studies. Professor Lenson was previously on the board of the Association of Modern and Contemporary Art from the Arab world, Iran and Turkey. Before joining Berkeley, she taught at the, university, at the American University in Cairo, where she directed the Visual Cultures Program from 2013 to 2014. She earned her PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the History, Theory, and Criticism of Architecture and Art Program and the Aga Khan Program for Islamic Architecture. The title of Professor Lenson's talk today is Selling Out, Fighting Over Art in Syria, Past and Present. She'll be looking at some really fascinating issues today, including what are the costs of participating in the global art world, as well as debates over the value of art. Um, and she'll be discussing this in the context of the national art scene in Syria, where she did her fieldwork between 2008 to 2010. Uh, before we jump right into it, um, I'd like to quickly take the audience through what's going to happen. Professor Lenson will speak for the first uh, half hour or so, after which we'll go into Q&A and that will take us until the one and a half hour mark. Um, you can indicate to your wish to ask a question um, by clicking the raise hand button on your Zoom toolbar, um, and we'll call on you. Um, alternatively, if you're feeling shy, you may type out your question and uh, convey the question on your behalf. Uh, now back to Professor Lenson. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Professor, you have the floor. Well, thank you so much for this invitation. I've been looking forward to it. Uh, for several weeks now thinking about what I wanted to share. And uh, let me begin by sharing my screen. One moment. And then I have to... Uh, is everybody seeing my uh, title slide now? Okay, great, thank you so much. So let me repeat, thank you for this uh, generous invitation. I am going to try to uh, oscillate in my planned remarks between some interpretive readings of specific artworks from modern Syria and contemporary Syria and uh, larger questions about extra artistic meaning in the economic and political spheres. And I hope it will open uh, lots of questions. And I am looking forward to the generous hour of um, conversation to follow what I'm about to present. So let me begin. You're still seeing my uh, slide picker on the side, right? Or do you see, okay, sorry, one moment. Let me try again. 
I do this, uh, my issue is if I do that, I can't see my text, which I also need to see. If I do this, can everybody see the detail enough on the primary slide in the center? Okay, then I'll just simply do it this way. You can see my preview, uh, but it should still work uh, to let us talk about what I'd like to present. Apologies for that. So around 2006, art journalists began to report on a hot auction market for modern art by Arab artists. This period exactly corresponds with my own graduate studies at MIT and the multi-year process of honing my research questions about modern art in Syria. As a result, the 15-year trajectory of my research and writing has been inflected by very dramatic changes in the market value of the artworks that make up the corpus of my study. As a quick example here on the slide, on the left I show you a clipping from a 2007 article about auction sales records set at Christie's Dubai, where a painting by the Syrian artist Fatih al-Mudar sold for $403,000. By 2010, a new museum of modern Arab art had opened in Qatar, and we were able to discover that they had purchased this painting and that it was part of its permanent collection. I wrote about that painting in a preview article for Art Forum, and you can see it on the right. It's the vertical uh, canvas showing uh, an image of the Last Supper. And as I noted in my 2011 article, the original owner of this painting had been an American diplomat who was stationed in Damascus in the 1960s, where he befriended the area artists and purchased a lot of paintings, none of them topping more than 1,000 Syrian lira, which is like $5 now. So this kind of inflation of prices inaugurated my entrance into the field as an art historian. Rising market demand in turn prompted increased object mobility and indeed liquidity. Families inside and outside the region faced new temptations to sell. Citizens in economic distress due to sanctions or war also began to resort to liberating artworks from poorly guarded state collections and shadowy entrepreneurs started to forge items in order to meet market demand. And yet almost none of the increased value of modern Arab painting has benefited Syrian artists. This is the dilemma I would like for us to try to consider today in this workshop. And my plan is to talk you through a short history of art institutions and art values in Syria and then conclude with this collective Q&A about the costs of participation in the global art world. The famous auction house Christie's opened a Dubai branch in April 2005. The following year, it held its first sale of modern and contemporary art, and it emphasized the wide Islamic region, including not only the Arab world, but also Iran, India, and Pakistan and not even exclusively so. It brought uh, works by artists like Andy Warhol also to Dubai. The sale was an unexpected success. It cleared more than 8 million US dollars and it set 53 records for individual artists. The auction house's own press release emphasized the breadth of buyers that had come to Dubai to bid 
53% from the Middle East, 23% from Europe, 11% from the Americas, 11% from Asia, and 2% from elsewhere. And prices continue to rise for the next couple of years. The top of the auction market for modern Arab and Iranian art was in 2008. It's helpful to consider the auction house's characterization of the origins of the modern works that it began to sell. Christie's pre-sale press release in 2006 alluded to, quote, the political and social climate of Iraq and Syria as producing some of the most memorable images in all of Arab contemporary art, end quote. This relatively coded language is a reference to the following three key political and social conditions in Iraq and Syria from the mid-20th century until the American invasion of Iraq in 2003 and the um, civil wars in Syria in 2011. And those three are highly controlled economies and ostensibly socialist politics, that's one. Two, relatively robust cultural infrastructures that, were, that funded artists and functioned in the service of stated Arabist objectives that connected individual countries to an idea of the Arab region, and three, concomitant experiences of repression, underground political activity, and imprisonment that made creative acts like art all the more vital and important to intellectuals in the country. These three combined to make for distinctive and uh, resonant art worlds that these auction houses drew from in the 2000s. This is a characterization of the Syrian art world and its heyday of the 60s to the 80s. And it makes for very helpful branding to buyers in the wider Arab region because it gestures to these pan-Arab triumphalist idioms of those decades that were held in common by many Arab countries, not just the ones in question, right? So Egyptian collectors could see a part of their history even in the Syrian experience, collectors in the Gulf could also think back to that time of pan-Arab triumphalist idioms. It's actually the background for the Mudaris painting still up on the um, screen here, a painting of the Last Supper. If we ask ourselves why a Muslim artist is painting a Christian imagery, the answer lies in part in a relationship to Syrian history that claims the historical figure of Jesus Christ for a longer um, triumphal a Syrian significance to world uh, religion and world literature. And so our artist is able to both uh, put forward imagery that can seem to be celebratory for a national frame, but at the same time, the actual content of the image is a, a image of Judas kissing Christ on the cheek as a, a signal of treachery to come. And so we can read this painting from 1965 as both a celebration of Syria, perhaps, but also testimony to the kinds of treachery and betrayal that were part of modern political history in the 1960s, just after the Ba'ath Party had taken control. Further, the political and social climate of Syria was such that ownership of specific artworks can be surprisingly difficult to ascertain and that makes the paintings from this period very vulnerable to market manipulation. Prior to the 2000s, the Syrian art world had almost no private sector. The state was the major patron. It was the entity that acquired paintings. It did so at a system of annual 
national exhibitions. Most artists made their living through government jobs as teachers or designers in the media sector. And what I'm showing you here are images from the personal archive of a wonderful artist named Mahmoud Hamad, who headed the painting department at the Arts College in Damascus. These are pictures of him in action as a pedagogue, teaching younger artists how to make on the left-hand side, and then participating in a critique of an artist at the National Art School on the right-hand side. His significance and even his paycheck was derived from his importance as a teacher, showing artists how to realize their capacities as humans. And not just, he was doing that not just as an individual teacher, but in the name of the socialist vision of the Ba'ath Party in general, which drew its legitimacy from its claims to help citizens realize their potential. So art teachers were participating in that idiom. In the 60s, the heyday that is contributing artworks to the later market auction markets of the 2000s, the Syrian regime also used the works of its leading artists to demonstrate its achievements abroad. So here I'm showing you a slide of our artist Mahmoud Hamad's five stunning, relatively large abstract paintings that he sent to Brazil in 1965 as part of the Syrian contributions to the Sao Paulo Biennale, a um, international showcase of modern painting. The Syrian ambassador in Brazil celebrated these paintings because they were up-to-date modern abstract uh, paintings that could compete with abstract paintings made by others. But at the same time, he also drew attention to the longer traditions of Arab Islamic art that had long excelled in abstract painting. And the argument that the Syrians put forward was that they'd achieved these innovations in design long before European artists ever turned to the task of abstraction. What's more, Hamad's particular approach to abstract painting is really interesting. He began all of the paintings like this one with its stunning color um, oscillations, this saturated blue background and play with texture and with building up an idea of composition. He actually bases this painting on an Arabic phrase that he would write out first in by hand. And that phrase is Kalam el-Muluk, Muluk el-Kalam, which is a, a uh, sort of saying having to do with the words of kings and their particular authority. But Hamad works those phrases so that they become absolutely illegible. He knows what's in there. He alerted the um, journalists in Syria what's in there, but no casual reader can actually discern the underlying Arabic text of these paintings. For Hamad, this was again a play with that expectation that Syrian artists were going to have Syrian content in their work. He starts from it, and yet we can also read this as a strange play with what officials expected from artists. He uses Syrian content, but he does not make it available to anybody else. And the painting becomes like a picture of a secret code or a hidden trans, um, transcript where the artist both follows the rules and inserts an element of doubt in it. Now, over time, the structure of government support and control only grew. From the 1970s onward, with the corrective movement in Syria um, launched in 1970, all the way until 2000, one single man, Hafez al-Assad, was the president of Syria for decades. 
Under him, a governmentally recognized artist union was formed, and every single person that studied art had to belong to it when they finished their degree. This made artists really easy to track and control. And what I'm showing you in this picture is a really interesting way in which that artist union tried to help artists. In the 70s, there were import controls that made it really difficult for artists to get the good quality oil paint that came from Europe that they were used to using in order to produce their paintings on behalf of the state. And so the union negotiated with the Syrian government to get special okay to bring imported paints over the border and distribute them to union members. Um, so they brought in Dutch paints through Beirut and then summoned all the members of the union for their ration of um, good quality oil paint. Now the flip side of this provisioning is that the state could claim the labor of members of the union whenever it wanted. So people that were in the union might receive a call and be forced to complete government commissions to do public uh, monuments or murals and there was no way to actually refuse that um, commission. Now the reason I'm introducing all of these structures is to say that the economic valuation of art in this period was never the idea of an individuated sellable art object. This never took firm hold in Syria. Instead, creative output was evaluated as a piece of larger social systems. Now, as time went on, by the 1990s, uh, the end of Hafez al-Assad's regime that became more controlling with every year some of the working methods of professional artists in Syria resemble exaggerated realist paradigms that we associate with fully controlled economies, authoritarian governments, and optimistic propaganda machines. So I'm showing you a photo I took myself from inside a war memorial that was constructed in the 1990s with large panorama paintings that were completed by Syrian artists in collaboration with North Korean artists that were dispatched to live in Syria and to teach Syrian artists how to make these larger than life, vivid, um, faux optimistic images with Hafez al-Assad at the center waving and all of the different types of Syrians surrounding him from the countryside into the city in this tableau. And you'll notice that the mural is actually staged so that you, if you imagine yourself in a shared space when you stand on that carpet and the carpet is actually extended into the painting. So it becomes a total environment of this kind of image of, of the country. Imagine then the shock of the entrance of market-oriented gallery representation in the 2000s. Throughout the 1990s, there were some privately run galleries in um, Syria, but they were mostly passion-driven enterprises by friends of artists with very low price points that sold uh, works to one another. The galleries also sometimes link themselves to home decoration. But in 2006, precisely at the moment when the auction market for Arab and Islamic art began to coalesce, the regime, really interestingly, the still controlling regime of Bashar al-Assad granted permission to a single businessman named Khalid Samawi to establish a private gallery. And that gallery declared its only mission to be that of maximizing profits. This is the IAM Gallery. And as I said, it opened in Damascus in 2006 and it very rapidly expanded opening branches in Beirut, Dubai, and Cairo. 
During the period of time that I was in Syria, this gallery was an audacious presence that courted controversies in, in its claims to be market-driven in a time when there was no market whatsoever. And I'm gonna focus on, on those um, years and the questions that they raise, but I'd be remiss not to say that come 2011 with the popular Syrian uprising and deadly crackdown on civilians by the military regime of Bashar al-Assad, this gallery became a rescue organization and it moved all of its artists that it represented out of the country and found ways for, to support them as um, refugees outside of Syria. Over their startup period, 2006 to 2010, their poli the politics of their presence was openly debated by artists. Their business model was very unusual they established two tiers of artists that they were going to represent. They had masters and they had shabab or young artists. The former were those who had become famous in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. That decade that I, those decades I was pointing to as a high point of artistic achievement when the state had actually supported artists and their development. Um, and as such, these artists, older artists, were admired for their political conviction and their faith in the artistic craft. For the younger artists, IAM ran a reality style show style talent search where the young artists competed for representation. They chose 10 artists, they promoted them, they asked to be the exclusive representatives of those artists, and they gave those artists quotas for production. So these artists had a total number of works they had to make every year, and they were told what size work to make. In exchange, the gallery actually paid salaries to artists. The artists were able to buy expensive imported cars, a complete luxury that very few Syrians enjoyed. And debates broke out about what was appropriate for artists to actually make, what kinds of luxury items is, should they even aspire to attain. And finally, and this to me is the most interesting part, I am gallery used the auction market to sell the originals of the young artists that were alive that they were representing. Auctions are rarely the preferred mechanism of auction of galleries. Uh, and that's because the auction setting is designed to produce artificial scarcity and to inflame passions among buyers and to prompt buyers to basically overpay for a painting in the adrenaline of the moment. Now, why this is dangerous for the careers of young artists is if a collector overpays at one auction and then tries to flip the work and the work does not come close to the high valuation, it will erode the reputation of the artist. So an artist can rise and fall through the auction mechanism exceedingly quickly. And so imagine in Syria, Still no actual market. Suddenly auction sales outside the country that are inflating the prices that young artists can command, not to Syrian artists and with no particular rationale for the rising prices of these works. So when I went to Syria in 2010 for, uh, to live there for a year to do my field work, this was the moment of the sort of greatest controversy and acrimony in the scene. A small cultural magazine published an interview with Khalid Samawi, that's what I'm showing you on this page, to reflect on the previous three years. And he described having 
outspent all other galleries. He said it was not meaningful to talk about any other players in the market. He cited the law of supply and demand, and he basically portrayed every single painting as interchangeable. He said, we try to take as much time selling the paintings as the artist spends making them. So if they produce 30 paintings a year, we try to sell 30. This is like a stunning characterization of the obligation of the gallerist to the artwork. Now, in the um, art scene of longer, more established artists, interestingly enough, the outlet for critique in Syria in this period was always Lebanese journals. So um, the uh, newspapers were controlled in Syria, but to issue a critique, people smuggled their uh, material over the border into left-wing newspapers in Beirut. And in Beirut, Syrian artists called um, the gallerist Samawi a Saddam Hussein of the artistic field because he seemed obsessed with eliminating his competition. So here we have a characterization of a promoter of Syrian art who's seen to be ruthless um, and seeking to drive everyone else into the ground. Um, interestingly, those who defended Khaled Samawi were often formerly communist affiliated figures who were so sick of the Syrian regime determining what people could do or could not do that they actually supported the gallery's efforts to introduce new activity into the scene. And they also praised IAM for producing glossy books on artists and distributing for free, something that the um, government had not been doing. All of this raises the questions that any historian of art and culture must ask. Who were these sales for? What was this effort to suture an already existing local market, right, with local artists who were widely perceived as significant and talented? What was the purpose and who benefits from suturing that local scene into a global art market that's going to have different requirements? To most everyday Syrians who'd not been trained by the existing state system, the question posed by this gallery had to do with why the government had even permitted it to operate. Rumors of money laundering were rampant. Everybody thought that this gallery was in it to just cover up other proceeds and to use the convenient fiction of nobody knowing the actual price of any artwork in order to cover their tracks. And this to me is a really interesting suspicion because it's difficult to refute. In fact, all of the art market and all of art history deals with commodities that we identify as absolutely unique. And our valuations are determined by the passionate knowledge of connoisseurs. They have no basis in fact in terms of the cost of materials or the cost of labor. That is not to suggest I think every collector is trying to conceal their misbegotten and illegal gains. <laughs> But I do want to emphasize that the so-called origins of the price tag of a work of art are, by their very definition, always concealed. And what's more, although the modern and contemporary art market has its unique forms of concealment relative to older, sorry, I don't know why I said although, the modern and contemporary art market has unique forms of concealment in terms of the origins of value. For instance, we always leverage our values on the reputation of the artist so that the artist benefits from further concealing origins. They'll talk about inspiration, for instance, rather than a need for cash or rather than a need for hard work. So this makes 
Another outcome of the auction boom, boom all the more painful for Syrians. The auction market is usually primarily a secondary market, which means the original creator of an artwork does not benefit at all from the sales. And this was the experience of the families of the older generation of artists that were getting sold for half a million dollars. Um, as, uh, and they were still living, including some artists who were still living. Collectors who'd bought their works for almost nothing decades earlier in the 60s suddenly brought the paintings to auction and earned hundreds of thousands of dollars for the paintings and felt no obligation to share the proceeds with the original artists in Syria themselves. All of which are the um, questions that I hope we get a chance to talk about together. Who owns art? In the largest sense, the field of art history as a whole might argue that all of us do. The concept of world patrimony is such that genuinely historically significant artworks are recognized widely and are considered the shared property of human history, which means they have to be protected as such. And here I'm showing you a picture of the exterior of the National Museum in Damascus, which is a um, claimed uh, facade of an Umayyad era desert palace that in colonial, during the colonial period of French occupation was actually moved to the capital and installed in this modernist box as the entry to the um, space of national patrimony in Syria. But what I hope this rather quick sketch of the very rapid shifts of valuation that Syrian artists have experienced in re recent decades show us that the idea that we all own human heritage is not so simple. From an economic standpoint, there's an implicit hierarchy of ideas of deservingness when we think about who should profit from the sale of art. Should it be the crafty promoter like Khaled Samawi who figured out how to get collectors interested in Syrian art when they never were before? Is it the actual creator of the work? Is it the Syrian people? a concept that state institutions like this national museum and cultural ministries had produced in the era of nationalism? And who should be allowed to sell, given that Syrian state support for modern artists had previously foregrounded an idea of cultural, collective cultural interest, a modern painting um, that we consider an item of cultural patrimony might be argued to belong to the country overall. Value accrues by that logic of a socialist progressive state to everyone in the community, which means that nobody has a right as an individual to uh, bring works to market. To do so is to abdicate from a responsibility of safeguarding and care. I don't have a neat ethical answer, but I certainly think that the experience of Syrian artists in the um, hot market shows us that the American art system, which is based comfortable yet always precariously on, a, on personal sales and personal taste uh, can't be taken as our default norm either. If the COVID crisis shows us anything, it's that we can't count on markets to sustain the daily life of creative actors, let alone artists who are relying on novelty in order to make sales. During the heyday of the Syrian art world, precisely the heyday that produced the most popular works like the Fateh, Mudaris that sold for $400,000. Um, these were artists that the government supported with a logic of caretaker statecraft that suppressed political stands but gave artists food and health care. 
actually have one final wrinkle to introduce to our considerations of value, and it has to do with authenticity and trust. Exactly concomitantly with the developments that I just outlined, the auction market for modern works became contaminated by forgeries, and that's a cause and effect. The artists for whom there were no living next of kin were the ones who were especially susceptible. So the Syrian artist Lu'ai Kayali, who had always painted in a figurative uh, style and um, gave us images of portraits and folk types and workers in Syria um, for the whole of his life until he died in 1978, had no recognized estate and no heirs. And this meant that he could be faked and forged with impunity. As far as I know, no uh, artist working as a forger has ever been identified, but all of the major auction houses have had to withdraw Lu'ai Kayali's from sales when uh, questions were raised about their provenance. And interestingly, even in Damascus in 2010, there were a lot of rumors about who was forging the artworks. There were, was one rumor that Iraqi artists, who had always been renowned for being even better in their technical skill than Syrian artists, who had been displaced from Baghdad in 2003 after the American invasion, in order to support themselves had resorted to careers as forgers, sometimes working in the style of their own teachers that they had studied with at university who'd become famous, and other times taking up the styles of other um, of other artists. And here I've labeled the one on the right, the Lu'ai Kayali, is a work that's actually in the National Museum in Damascus, which I photographed, which has a provenance and uh, sales of record. And the one on the left uh, was later revealed to be a fake. Uh, it's in a style that Kayali did when he was studying in Italy. And that became a convenient excuse for why nobody had seen artworks before. They would always be claimed to have been sold to Italian collectors when he was in Italy uh, without any records um, subsequently. The other rumor for who was forging is often people said that the families of artists that were sick and tired of earning no money, so not the Kayalis, but other artists that got forged, that were watching these sales and uh, furious that they weren't benefiting, actually went into cahoots with lesser known artists and agreed to authenticate fakes in order to um, receive some kind of proceeds from the work of their own, um, of their very own artists. For scholarship, this produces a really interesting bind. I can look at beautifully documented works that auction houses have some kind of shadowy provenance for and I no longer trust my own eyes to determine by style alone if it's real or if it's not. For me to feel comfortable writing about any of these works, I have to independently confirm them by finding an Arabic language newspaper with a date from that period that has a photograph of that work. And even then, it's not always, I don't always feel confident. Uh, I had some very good forgers actually start from documentation and produce their artworks from it so that they have a record. Now, I'd love to talk about fakes and how to, uh, I think it's a really interesting development and I think it does place ethical pressures on how we think about valuation. But I also want to point out that this dilution of whether we feel we can trust our own eyes when we look at artwork is another shift in the value and who benefits from this kind of practice. We can't any longer even trust our own emotion, right? If I love the way this fake painting looks and then I determine that it's fake, 
this produces this weird dissonance in the kinds of arguments I can produce about the importance of work. And so in the end, we're left constantly searching for elusive authenticity or recognizing a fundamental lack of it. And that's my final a point that I wanted to raise for today. I know I went a little long. I hope you'll permit me. I have two more paragraphs to get through and they're about the present day. So I think it's actually appropriate to now consider the possibility that no image is true in the sense of something that is unique and can be owned and that can be exchanged. And in making that claim, I'm following on the insights of a even more recent generation of Syrian artists, artists who are interested in making work not as paintings, but as ephemeral, less official works that can't be tracked or controlled by the Syrian regime. In 2010, a collective of Syrian filmmakers calling themselves Abu Nadara launched uh, as a small collective in Syria under the cover of anonymity. They distributed their films through a website, which is interesting. Websites aren't actually anonymous, but they did not wait to get permission from the regime in order to publish the films that they wanted to make. So they were taking a small risk and they were planning to just shut down if they faced any pressures. Um, in their earliest phase of production in 2010, and I'm showing you the uh, website that they made in 2010 to distribute their films, they made super short films of like one to five minutes and they were all images of everyday life without a clear beginning end or without moralistic or clear cultural content. One of them showed an architect at a um, dance aerobics class, just moving his body. Uh, other ones showed times uh, of um, rest inside national monuments like the Umayyad Mosque. Uh, there's a picture of the maintenance that went into vacuuming it at night when um, calls to prayer were over and the like. In making this decision to focus on everyday content, they were trying to make Syrian images that were not heroic and did not fit regime narratives. But interestingly, they were also trying to make documentary films that did not fit European donors' expectations. A lot of the opportunities to make documentary film in Syria relied upon NGO funding from external European producers who privileged stereotypical themes like Middle Eastern women, the veil, and child poverty. Now with the 2011 uprisings, Abu Nadarish shifted their tactics in terms of what they were documenting toward the everyday life inside a revolution. They continued in their quest, however, to resist expectations of what a Syrian revolution looked like. For these filmmakers, there was no singular Syrian subject who could be reduced to a caricature. And they actually found themselves extremely successful on the international art world scene. They were included in a lot of biennials and won a number of prizes. In doing, uh, and the films that they made and that they distributed involved collecting unsparing footage from the field. They did short films with filmmakers on all sides of the conflict. They even accepted films from members of ISIS. Their point was not to make agitprop. They wanted to insist on human complexity rather than the all too easy dehumanizing categories of enemy and hero. In the end, even though they gave a platform to these war-making militias, they saw their project as anti-war. 
They wanted to showcase the humanity of Syrians so that it was harder to kill Syrians. It was harder to dehumanize Syrians. In order to kill, one has to dehumanize. So they were constantly insisting on the humanity and complexity of everyone, um, and therefore the possibility of a new Syria. Since 2015 or so, Abu Nudara has taken another turn in their sense of their mission as artists in an art world that remains overall premised on exchangeable ideas of value. And that's what I want to end on. They have noted how international protocols governing wartime imagery are structured differently for Syrians than they are for, say, Americans. Photographs of American war dead are almost never distributed in the American news. The rationale cited is one of respect. Out of respect for the dead, we will not show the dehumanized forms of bloodied and disfigured soldiers. And yet, in the years 2012, 2013, 2014, grotesque and undignified images of Syrian victims of war were commonplace in the news media. In 2016, Abu Nadara issued a manifesto-like text that called on image makers around the world to resist the inequality of these conventions. They wrote, to prevent the poor Syrians from dying in complete silence, it is thought reasonable that their maltreated, dignity-robbed bodies are put on display, end quote. In this system, Syrian cameramen on the ground in the war zones, and I'm not showing you those war images in accordance with this manifesto, Syria, Syrian cameramen on the ground in Syrian cities who were ethically committed to documenting war crimes and collecting images of Syrians in that frame were rendered into mere subcontractors delivering imagery to a media industry that relied on the spectacular ugly death of Syrians in order to get views for their news. The result, is the, as Abu Gandara put it, is that Syrians continue to die and they contribute their images of themselves to a media that dehumanizes them and generates profit. They are stripped of dignity and a sense of a right to self-determination. The only response Abu Nadara says is to rethink the values of images in our art world and in our media world. In effect, they proposed yet another idea of image rights. They we're not arguing for Syrians to have rights to property per se, or to be able to sell their own artwork. They were instead arguing for a right of reciprocity. The rights of the 21st century would be the rights to one's own image amid a sea of sold and um, exchanged images. Everyone involved in circulating imagery was called upon to respect the right to human dignity to be represented in images as a person worthy of respect, and thus a right to self-determination that does not have to do with the nation state of Syria, but instead to the fundamental humanity and recognition of one another as people. To Abu Nudara, Syrian artists and Syrian citizens had for too long been sold to the world's highest bidders, and the task before us now is to recognize that and change these conditions accordingly. So with that call to all new ideas of artistic property, I end my formal prepared presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Lenson. Uh, that was fascinating. I really enjoyed that. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this is our cue to move to question and answer. 
as conveyed earlier, if you'd like to ask a question, please raise, uh, please click the raise hand button or other on your Zoom toolbar and we'll call on you. Uh, when asking your question, please remember to unmute yourself and uh, maybe switch on your video so we can see you. Um, you. You can also type out your question and send it to us in a little chat box at the bottom of your screen and we'll convey it on your behalf. Asif, um, Asif is a senior research fellow, um, senior research fellow. Asif, go ahead. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, and thank you for uh, this uh, presentation. Uh, art or art form or the domain that you have specialized uh, are really difficult uh, for, for, for people to understand. Uh, it was a very good exposure to this uh, very different world. And thank you so much for that. My question to you uh, uh, are two. Uh, one, uh, of course, is related to the money behind, uh, you know, this fascinating world. Uh, how exactly, uh, you know, uh, the collectors, uh, you know, what exactly is the procedure through which, uh, you know, this, this whole uh, business goes. And especially I would like to know the role of the scholars like you in determining the, 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 the real from the fake and things like that, uh, the fascinating world that you are in, which is actually could be a part of a, a very a classic novel. So uh, <laughs> that, that is my first question. And uh, sorry, because uh, this is a very rare opportunity for us to have. So I'm asking you this. And the second, of course, pertains to my world. And that is the strategic, uh, uh, strategic domain. And uh, there also you have contributed a lot, especially uh, because I work on Iran and, uh, you know, Syria is very closely linked to Iran and uh, you have very deep understanding. In your book also, you have covered a lot, especially the contested nature of this territory that is Syria and you have depicted it in, through your art form. So the second would be uh, this question about the contested, you know, nature of this territory. Uh, what is your impression on that, the, the impression that you have got through those art forms? Thank you for uh, so much uh, in anticipation for the answer of these two questions. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much. Those questions are exactly at the heart of, I think, the significance of looking at art with questions about value. So I'm, I'm grateful to you for posing those. Um, if, I, if I understood the first um, question, you wanted to urge me to admit that even what is perhaps a radical proposal from the collective Abu Nadara um, to think about uh, collective property in ways where uh, the exchange of it doesn't produce this differential of, uh, of access and wealth. You wanted a little bit more about their funding structure, which is perfectly valid. And then you also asked me about my own role. Um, Abu Nadara, gets by as um, artists that now operate in yet another kind of art world. The art world that I was primarily presenting is, a, is the art world of uh, fixed objects that uh, can be collected as investments and sold subsequently. But there's a concomitant art world that um, practicing artists of a certain generation also participate in, which is an art world premised a lot on uh, experiences and um, 
site specific uh, responses that where artists are um, paid to be residents at uh, long or short term at, in a sort of guest uh, tourists with special sight and insight and uh, criticality that they've honed in their um, uh, studies as artists. And Abu Nidara uh, primarily funds their life and their activism through those kinds of gigs. So they were a, a resident collective uh, where they have a spokesperson who's named and uh, serves as the conduit to other participants in the group who maintain their anonymity. And they receive grants for um, art activist kinds of programs. So they get by scraping by uh, with project-based support for the ethical value of their work. And this is a model that uh, contemporary art museums and universities follow a lot. So they're not actually purchasing work, but they're making work possible by supporting the persons that, um, that produce it. And um, that's yet another interesting development in the contemporary art world. Um, on top of just the things, we now have uh, people that are generating values of different kinds. My own role in this all is exceedingly fraught, and I'm very glad you asked it. Uh, and I'll start with a small anecdote, which is just to say when I was getting trained as a graduate student, the best advice I was ever given by a mentor was to never buy work myself that the second, even if I just loved it, right, uh, even if it just moved me, that the second I made a purchase, that I would be viewed utterly differently by the artists that I was uh, researching, by their families, um, that I would be a sort of participant in the market in ways that would make it very difficult to subsequently attempt the customary step back into some kind of claim to objectivity and, and an ability to um, make claims about what works are most significant and what works are insignificant. That said, uh, and I would never do it because this was, it was great advice. Um, the second I write about artists in Syria, um, given that the, histori the historiography and the literature out there is very scant in English, if I publish an article about an artist, the value of that artist's work on auction immediately goes up. And that's a very peculiar feeling um, because I am not writing about necessarily the artists that I think are the best. That's not my task. I'm trying to ask historical questions, not just sort of questions of aesthetic um, significance. And that's something that gets then muddied. Why uh, I have a chapter in my book about an artist that was the, a favorite artist of the Basque party and its ideologues. I think he's a really interesting artist, but in terms of the weight of a, of a sort of official artist by a regime that became a very murderous regime. That's a difficult decision I had to think a lot about before I uh, featured that artist. And I don't think there's an easy way to avoid those kinds of um, implicit judgments uh, that I end up passing with my selections of, of uh, artists. Uh, and I try to answer it just by always making clear what my stakes are. I, in this talk, I also want to make sure that uh, we're not thinking of Syria as some sort of aberration, that the values of art in the US are wildly subjective and peculiar and you know, cover up all kinds of bad behavior as well. And that actually thinking a socialist control, the experience of artists in a very controlled setting against the experience of artists in an, in an uncontrolled setting is exceedingly useful for us to 
grasp what is contingent and what is not. Your point about the contested um, space of Syria, and then and I'll try to make my answers a little shorter maybe, is, is another great one. Um, and one of the reasons that I emphasize this pan-Arab moment of the 60s uh, as being a kind of way to commodify these paintings so that they're appealing to others, it, uh, I emphasize that because that's a very artificial claim. First of all, there are plenty of residents of Syria who are not Arab uh, by the kind of conventional claims to language or to ethnic heritage. There are large Kurdish populations, um, Circassian populations, just it's a polylingual um, space of, of many religions and the um, desire for a kind of Syrianness or Arabness is, is deeply constructed. And it's also very meaningful in the current moment. For instance, it's meaningful that Qatar in 2010 opened a museum dedicated to Arab art. That was a time when Qatar was making a huge play to be an ideological patron of, for instance, the elections in Egypt. And so their collecting of works that uh, under a kind of Arab banner is also their claim to a kind of affinity and special relationship to um, a version of uh, history that, that they are invested in and other actors and other claimants to Syrian politics are less invested in. Um, and, you know, in many ways that fascinatingly neatly tracks. Uh, and in other ways, um, we find all kinds of patterns where uh, I, different ideas of Syrian patrimony are, were also getting um, negotiated. I find it really interesting that my artist Fateh El Mudaris, uh, from a hat, he was, uh, his mother was Kurdish, his father's Sunni landowner in Aleppo, Muslim, that he so frequently used uh, Christian thematics in his painting, uh, but thought of them as a kind of heritage that all Syrians sort of inherited uh, in this space of multiple um, civilizational development uh, that everyone, regardless of their religion, had to think about as part of what uh, Syrians um, claimed as their own and their historical imaginations. I hope that answers some of it. These are a great question. We can circle back to them if, if, uh, uh, if others have similar ones. Hey, thank you, Professor. Um, I have a question from Yan Long. Yan Long, um, go ahead. Yeah, um, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Hi, Prof. Lanson. So I have two questions and they are quite related actually. So the first one is really, um, I think in your presentation, uh, which was really, really interesting for me, um, you talked a lot about this idea of like an Arab art circuit and how this circuit, you know, consisting of many people value art in a certain way. So my question is, is how, how pan-Arab is this circuit? In the sense that, you know, do you get different basis of valuation when you go to a place like Egypt as opposed to, to Syria and, and um, some other countries. And the second question is also um, linked to this, which is what are the uh, most significant differences in the way a piece of art is valued in the Arab world as opposed to other worlds? And um, I'm asking this because, for example, I think you talked a, a bit about how um, the, the, the manual effort or labor of the artist is not as appreciated as a basis of valuation in the, in the Arab art circuit. But if you go to another um, circuit, you know, it might be some, some more value might be placed on that. So I was wondering, you know, with your experience as an art historian, do you see this basis of valuation being 
very much differentiated by, by culture and, and history. Thank you. Thank you. Those are great questions. Um, how Pan-Arab is the art circuit is a, is a good one. Um, and I think it has really differed. Uh, anecdotally, I, when I yan the gallery that I was focusing on because they were so fascinatingly cartoonish and saying we're trying to make money, uh, they expanded to Cairo uh, in, I think, 2013, if I'm remembering properly, maybe earlier, actually. Yes, earlier, 2010, it was before the uprisings. And they made almost no sales and closed, uh, closed almost immediately, and they were selling Syrian works. So uh, that's, of course, merely anecdotal. In my experience, the market for Arab art under the pan-Arab rubric was one that these auction houses really pushed and seemed most resonant as a, a reason for a collector to be interested for collectors that were either expats um, who did not live in the region and had a certain affinity then to a, an idea of a pan-Arab community as a kind of community outside the bounds of a country of origin, a pressure block, you know, all of the sense of what coming together as Arabs might accomplish in the world. They collected works under this rubric. Gulf collectors for a while collected works under this rubric and museums collected works under this rubric rather than national rubrics. Um, more local collectors, there are certainly a lot of collectors in, in Egypt, for instance. Um, it seems that Egyptian collectors for the most part collected Egyptian works. Um, Syrian art, because of the proximity to Lebanon, um, Syrian artists had gallery representation in the 90s um, with sort of forward-thinking gallerists like Saleh Barakat in Beirut, who um, had a vision of a kind of regional um, art world, which uh, that idea of regionality is also a dream of overcoming the colonial boundaries that have been imposed on the region in the 1920s. So the sense that Syria and Lebanon had previously been connected and that of course family structures remained connected. A lot of Syrians have family in Lebanon and vice versa. That can be a very effective uh, framework for making the case to collectors and appreciators of art to sort of broaden their horizons and what they might um, purchase. In the 70s, the idea of a, of a pan-Arab art world was um, heavily promoted by Iraq, for instance, which um, had become newly uh, wealthy from oil revenues after the embargo, um, the, uh, the um, sort of act after 73 and, and 74 to reclaim those profits. And uh, in the 70s, Iraq sponsored lots of pan-Arab events that also promoted that idea of the art scene. The most significant difference in terms of how artists are valued is another great question and I would, I'll just couch it by saying I'm always hesitant to make some grand claim. Uh, but one thing I find interesting as a historian, constantly searching for documentation of these works so that I can piece together a narrative about what people cared about, uh, which paintings were important and the like is that um, there was a ton of art criticism published in the 60s in Syria. Every cultural journal that the state published had um, coverage of the arts, but almost none of that coverage actually ever published illustrations of art. 
So imagine an art discourse with flowery descriptions of paintings. Uh, and those descriptions often emphasize how the artist had realized themselves and their capacities through the act of making. And it would describe decisions about style or color schemes, but it never showed the works. So a reader had no access to the actual appearance of these works. They only had access to the verbiage that these um, government-sponsored critics were generating in order, it seems to me, and this is common in a lot of um, socialist settings, in order to teach people how, sort of scripts for responding in an affirmative way to the efforts of the artists among them. So there was just a kind of investment in artists as something that every advanced society should have, and also in artists as an effort for education. Um, uplift of the regular citizenry who might be taught to respond positively um, and with a kind of emotional uh, self-affirmation to um, paintings. Now that's not some absolute difference in the US. There's a ton of uh, literature on art education and how important it is to uh, framing the aesthetic experiences of children. But I would say it is far more prevalent and um, this valuing of art in terms of a person and their personality and their capabilities uh, took precedence over what in the US uh, art history we talk about formalist appreciations where we pin everything to appearances. Very little is pinned to the appearance of, an, of a specific, discrete, unique art object. Most of the discourse is around acts of making processes and um, progressive education. Hey, thank you, Professor. Um, I have a question from uh, Alex Arduino. He's a Principal Research Fellow at MEI. Thank you for the informative presentation. Modern art and antiquities are also an efficient conduit for money laundering and terrorist financing. You briefly mentioned a probable case of money laundering in Syria. Can you give us more details? <laughs> I actually uh, refrain from offering it. It's an excellent question. And I had, in a longer version of this, uh, planned to emphasize what I think um, Alex is pointing out, which is that throughout the Syrian civil war, for instance, but even prior to that, um, post-2003, and also even prior to that, there has been a steady stream of uh, antiquities that have been smuggled out of Syria, Iraq, um, the entire region, despite there being laws meant to protect um, patrimony. And um, in a way, I was even gesturing toward thinking of modern artworks as a kind of patrimony that we might not want to just endlessly uh, put into auction. Um, and uh, Alex, I think, was also had in mind that um, these items uh, London is a hub for antiquities, and we know that items are coming out of both um, the uh, like ISIS-controlled areas as well as regime-controlled areas. So both sides of this terrible conflict are um, raising cash by uh, selling these antiquities and purchasing more weapons um, to kill civilians with. It's a it's a hideous circuit, and it um, peculiarly 
it's very difficult to police. It requires the self-policing of collectors and collectors are keen to get deals um, and constantly overlook their ethical obligation to not purchase these works um, that have that lack provenance or that are clearly looted. I did not mean to, and I am very conscious this is being uh, recorded. I don't think that IAM was money laundering, but I, at the same time, when I heard those rumors from friends in Syria in 2007, it was very difficult to refute their sense that the gallery was a cover for generating outsized cash <laughs> that had no uh, basis in the actual value of uh, what it was trading. So like easy ways to money launder would be to um, inflate receipts, right? So you claim, you agree with, uh, on auction, you agree with somebody who's bidding in advance, the dealer and the bidder, that uh, the um, bidder is going to bid some enormous amount of money. They're going to win, and then they're actually going to pay a much smaller amount, but you'll generate an invoice for the larger amount. These kinds of like uh, phony record keeping can be very valuable to somebody trying to hide um, cash flows. And again, I don't think, I don't think like the regime asked IAM to do that. They wouldn't have to hide any cash flows anyway. But the very process in 2007 of suddenly selling artworks that had gone for a thousand pounds five years earlier to collectors in Syria, moving them at a hundred thousand dollars is the sort of psychic equivalent in, in Syria for regular Syrians as a kind of money laundering. It doesn't benefit, uh, it's so out of the reach of actual market forces and the artists and uh, all of their values that it might as well uh, be, be serving um, these sort of illicit interests. Okay, thank you, Professor. Um, I think we have another question. Um, uh, Eugene, you wanna go ahead? Hi Prof, thanks for thanks for the presentation. It was really it was really really interesting. Uh, I just have one question. Um, so I think uh, you mentioned you know being unable to trust uh, a lot of the artwork that was being that some of the works that were being put out, and you know art, even families of artists of working with younger artists to to forge uh, works for money. Um, so I think just throughout your presentation, I I, I noticed that. Syrian art uh, very much, at least modern Syrian art, is very much characterized by the ways that it was resisting um, a lot of the forces that were thrust upon it. So, uh, for example, like, uh, you know, it resists like market forces through forgeries, resisting the state through uh, meaningless short films that subvert government agendas and, and stereotypes, uh, even resisting the media by, you know, sort of Telling uh, uh, the uh, telling uh, other people you know around the globe not to put Syrian bodies on display and all that. So, um, I was wondering whether this kind of resistance was a was a sort of uh, uh, a kind of Syrian agency in art because they have been you know they have been so many you know market forces have been thrust upon them. They have been forced to conform to state agenda even you know during the Baathist era and even now I think during the Assad regime. And also, you know, being having this image of war being thrust upon them. So maybe, I, I don't know, would you say that Syrian art and modern Syrian art is characterized by um, resisting all these forces that have previously sort of deprived Syrian agency from, from the artists, from 
from from the from the creators even yeah thank you for that very meaningful question and you've certainly put your finger on how i want to read a lot of this history um my book that the research i was doing that i was recounting to you um, that comes out of that research uh, is looking at artists in the 60s and as a modernist um, trying to think globally where uh, the norms of one place are not thought to be universal and that we always check our one norm against another uh, one frustration i have is that in controlled settings socialist settings authoritarian settings like syria um, the standard readings are very cartoonish. We either think of artists as just propping up uh, regime agendas, or we celebrate their total break with them. Uh, and, to, and to me, that is just, you know, the least responsible and most boring way to read these works. So um, you picked up, I think, that I was pointing to two artists, Fateh Almodaris and Mahmoud Hamad, who are brilliant thinkers, who read widely, uh, read, um, followed the news, were educators uh, that educated students not to accept any inherited values and to question everything, and yet still had to operate. Uh, you know, you couldn't teach and not be a member of the Bath Party, uh, that, but that doesn't mean you believed it, right? So somehow we need models for um, grasping that complexity, not even as a forced complexity. I mean, they certainly experienced certain obligations as forced ones, but as genuine complexity uh, that makes these um, works all the more compelling as negotiations with showing something and yet signaling uh, to those that were tuned into it that a lot is also being withheld. And these artists um, weren't just appreciated by the regime, they were appreciated by the artists who studied with them and then went underground because they believed so fully in lending themselves to um, even further left-wing revolutions, to the Palestinian liberation movement, all of these um, actions that actually weren't allowed. Uh, artists had sort of first imbibed these lessons of questioning and being critical and they carry those forward. So I do see resistance and survival as a dynamic. Um, and I, it's a dynamic that you are absolutely right, Abu Nadara in their call to assert a right to the image, they also have in mind. In some of their other writings, they talk about histories of making in Syria that were more popular than the ones the regime allowed of artisans that were making crafts that um, thought about how communities should uh, self-organize rather than uh, accept what's imposed. Um, and so, yes, this is a history that has a lot of possibility that couldn't be outwardly expressed, but could be perceived by its participants. And to the best of my ability as an outsider, I try to presume that that complexity is in play and to do justice to it when I um, present this history. And it is complexity that the auction houses do not, I mean, you wouldn't expect them to, but, but they do not introduce in their descriptions of these works. So in that sense, it's kind of fun to scout out what has been collected and documented and to realize that they're still 
that they are perpetuating a kind of official frame, um, but that there really is still so much more available um, that other Syrian artists continue to activate and to recognize um, in their practice. Um, okay, I have a question from uh, Josian uh, Regine. Um, apologies if I mangled your name. Um, you talked about the role of IM Gallery. Is there or were there any other gallery that played a significant role in Syrian in the Syrian art ecosystem? Uh, yes, great question. Um, there, the quick history of galleries in Syria is that actually in 1960 there was a private gallery uh, that was launched uh, before the Ba'ath regime that uh, had a really interesting profile where they were a kind of social hub. And then they went into collaboration, even with the Ba'ath regime, uh, to continue to perform artistic promotional functions. Uh, in the 70s and 80s, there weren't very many. Um, in the 90s, there was a really important gallery run by Mona Atassi in Damascus, who was uh, just a brilliant woman um, and friends with all of the writers as well as the artists. And she ran the gallery as an intellectual hub, hosted a lot of events, uh, publication projects, and small archival projects. And even in the a period that I was going to Syria a lot in the in the 2000s, um, there were other private galleries that, like I am, really invested in the artists they were representing as uh, with an eye to sales. Um, but unlike I am, didn't try to monopolize the artists and demolish the competition. So there was a wonderful gallery called Rafia Gallery that after the uprising, the owner of that gallery took an extremely strong stance against the regime and had to leave Syria um, and hasn't been operating as a gallerist since, but it remains a, an interesting and important advocate of um, Syrian arts. One thing though that I should point out is that from 1963 onward, it was not legal to mount an exhibition without pre-approval from the Ministry of Culture. So um, when I was in Syria in the 2000s, there had been this sort of loosening and opening. IAM could do a lot of uh, things and they kind of had pre-approval, but they still registered their exhibitions. And I was friends with a young artists in their uh, 20s that were running their own art space called All Art Now, which was devoted to video art and forms of art that had never been appreciated, sort of experimental art forms that had never been appreciated in Syria. But they also had to, they had to a lot, like a week in advance to try to go to the Ministry of Culture and explain what they were going to install and make the case that it was art uh, to very skeptical um, Ministry of Culture officials. And of course, the Ministry of Culture officials weren't just interested in um, maintaining quality, they were they were controlling content. So you, you, had to get the, you had to get the okay in advance, no matter whether you were a purportedly private gallery or a state-run gallery, everybody was still subject to this um, pre-permission rule. Okay, thank you, Professor. Um, I don't see any other questions at the moment. Um, maybe I could jump in. Um, I wanted to get your take on how we can um, rethink the costs of art on ethical rather than economic grounds. I mean, like the other kinds of value, like economic, artistic, aesthetic, um, yeah, in, either indirectly or directly related to money, um, 
and you know and can already be said to form a like a criteria in determining like how valuable how important a, a commodity like art is uh, so what's your what's your take on that? yes good question it's easy for easier for me to be critical than for me to outline what i think should happen so uh i'm i'm happy to hear that i have two answers i mean first of all I think it's crucial to normalize the idea that uh, the individual creator of an art object is, can, can never be working alone. Um, that was always the case. Uh, sociological studies of art always point out the second you start to think about all that's required for you to produce a painting, like the people that had to make the paint in Holland before you imported it and the spouse you have that makes the meals that allows you to spend time in the in the gallery you know all of the supporting structure immediately kicks the legs out from some idea of inspired genius so the thinking of how uh, larger communities are already invested and participant in uh, making a work of art i think is just something important to recognize and to call out at all times in the contemporary kind of structuring that I was talking about, this does mean that um, individual artists who might get money to realize like a large splashy commission, uh, that the commissioner as well as the artist receiving the commission, I do believe are under a kind of obligation to recognize that all of the fabricators and the assist gallery assistants and the, um, all of the others participating must also be compensated appropriately. So in terms of just a kind of mindset about art, I do strongly believe this idea that singular creator, singular object, it all accrues to the kind of genius maker. I don't buy, I don't buy that. Um, and yet, of course, I just wrote a book where I talk about the individual maker all the time while trying to show all of the communal structures that make it possible. I mean, the, all of our language for studying art has a kind of singular genius but the reality is not like that. So the more that we you know, acknowledge that and think of compensation, I think the better off we'll be. Um, and I'm gonna answer a question you didn't exactly ask, but that weighs on me a lot, which is I'm talking about objects a lot, but there's the additional charge that here, for instance, me, I've written this book on, about Syrian artists and nobody makes any money from academic books, but uh, you know, who's benefiting from my writing this book? I am, you know, I, uh, I got a promotion at my work because I got a book out and I, not certain Syrians are benefiting from that uh, project. And in sort of connecting that question is the question of access to archives, right? So I talked about how I need to check print material to try to authenticate artworks. There are, um, in order to write history, the more sort of personal letters that artists wrote and um, all of the supporting material that an auction house uses to authenticate the, you know, the provenance of a work is extremely valuable to historians. And there's a, a kind of accompanying problem of what to do with that historical material. Where does it go? When it remains in Syria, it's very difficult for anybody to access it because the archives there are not open to all researchers. They're not public. So where's the responsible place to put these materials? If we take them out of Syria, however, Syrians who are subject to visa and passport controls everywhere they want to go will never see their own 
patrimony and historical materials. So there's a, a really interesting accompanying question about how to be good stewards of archival material. And one interesting solution that's been pioneered by art historians and critics in um, South America actually has to do with reconceiving archives and their um, individuality, where they uh, don't take works out of the, of the families that have always been stewards of them, but instead pay stipends to the families to agree to answer emails and open their homes from time to time to researchers and sort of have a negotiated openness. So it's not a public archive and it's not an archive based on like extracting the material and hoarding it elsewhere, but it's an archive based on a kind of agreement and recognition of uh, families and their right to participate in this uh, memory. So those are solutions that are still getting devised to just thinking about sharing responsibility and then also sharing uh, recognition and uh, remuneration um, as systems that are part of the art world. Okay, thank you. Um, I think we don't have any questions. Uh, ah, we have one from Fenjin. Fenjin, go ahead. Yes, um, hi professor, thanks so much for your talk. I found it um, really enjoyable and I learned a lot from it. Um, I'm just interested in that period um, of Syrian art where um, artists were in negotiation with the state that you have already talked a little bit about. Um, basically, um, you know, that there's sort of a tension in, in the relationship because on the one hand, the state needs um, artists to try to promote the state building project, the regime building project. Um, and at the same time, you know, artists do need the state to, to survive, but there has to be a sort of genuine relationship because otherwise, um, you can't, you know, if the art is completely phony, you, you can't contribute to the nation building project. So I'm just right. wondering, um, could you tell us a bit more about how artists at that period sort of um, negotiated with this issue and, um, you know, how they tried to, uh, in their art, uh, you know, were there some of them who were more supportive of the state um, project? Uh, how, could you tell us a bit more about that, please? Yes, thank you for that question. And you are, um, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. There's a sort of symbiotic relationship. And I think that the um, artists that I was highlighting, figures like Fateh Mudaris and Mahmoud Hamad in the 60s, uh, it's particularly in the 60s when the um, government, after the coup d'etat of uh, March 8, 1963, where the government had been more sort of Western aligned and it shifted to this the socialist platform of the Ba'ath Party. Um, I think artists not only welcomed the involvement of the state uh, as a patron, I don't think that they necessarily were yearning for a private market based on speculation. And I say that with some confidence. For instance, in 1965, when the Ministry of Culture announced that it was going to require artists who participated in the National Exhibition to make work with national content. Um, I knew from interviews I'd done with artists in Syria that this was perceived by artists as a big alarm bell, that they needed to let the regime know that the regime could not meddle with their stylistic decisions or their uh, the artist's sense of what appropriate content was. But they didn't think that the 
um, Ministry of Culture should get out of the scene altogether. And in, uh, and the Bath Party in their controlled newspapers actually published transcripts of the debates that went on at the opening of that exhibition where they report on artists saying, what, what the hell do you mean by national content? And then when the Minister of Culture gave a pretty literal answer, he said, pictures of heroes, uh, you know, the elevating the Arab past. I mean, the most cl cliche definition of Arab, of national content. Uh, in the printed transcript, artist said, you're a fool, national content is much more powerful and significant than how you're characterizing it. Trust us to make art that is meaningful. Uh, you cannot script it, it'll just make for bad art. And this was an interesting negotiation in the 1960s. Um, and we have to take even that with a grain of salt, given that uh, there wasn't space to outright completely disagree. And yet there was uh, in sort of letters that artists wrote to one another, a sense that it was important to actually develop the capacities of the Arab region and that the Arab region had suffered miserably from colonial occupation. And the best way to overcome colonial occupation was to band together to sort of uh, develop industrial capacities, develop military capacities, and to be stronger uh, in order to realize the capacities of the region. And I think almost every artist of the heroic 60s genuinely believed that. They did not want to be aligned uh, fully with a Soviet or, or a uh, sort of capitalist Western line. They wanted to be self-determining and they saw support from the government for their work as part of that and they believed in contributing to that cause. Um, so they were very suspicious of their bureaucrats, um, but they took a lot of meaning also in um, in their work as educators and in the kind of sacred space of actual artistic practice where artists spoke with one another about what was meaningful um, and what they could actually uh, contribute. In later decades, I keep glossing over them because in later decades, there were a lot more artists produced um, and the first generation still held all the uh, teaching positions in the art school. And so the next generation of artists uh, took many more applied positions. They like worked in um, television and they worked as designers and they didn't have the kind of privileged um, significance of sort of setting the tone for national arts. And um, they got really impatient with the older generation and they were the ones that um, often abandoned art for direct political action with consequences for their, uh, the trajectory of their lives. Um, many left and the like. Um, thank you, Professor. Um, we don't have any questions uh, at the moment. Um, I think maybe we'll do one last question. Um, since I don't see any questions, I'll take the prerogative and uh, maybe ask the last question. Um, what can I get? Uh, could you tell us a bit more about the art education um, infrastructure in the in Syria itself? Um, because I mean, like, if you're if Amidst concerns that you know the sort of uh, the 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 insertion into the global arts world is perhaps sort of eroding this notion of a indigenous grassroots art scene developing. Uh, what would what would be? I mean, it seems to me that perhaps investing in arts education would be a sensible way to get around this. Um, right. 
and you know and and it seems to me that um, the gallery uh, that you mentioned, um, he actually created a platform that supported local artists in the production of their work. Um, right. Yeah. So, yep. so uh, could you tell us a bit more about the arts educational infrastructure that's in Syria? Yes, thank you for that question. And um, yes, I am Gallery did create another structure for young artists to uh, get visibility and engagement in what they were trying to do and um, respond to it. And that was outside the art school. And that was seen as valuable even by figures like um, Yusuf Abdelki, who was a, a left-wing activist who was driven out of uh, Syria for several decades, lived in Paris and, and came back in the um, 2010s and got representation at IAM Gallery as well for a while before he stepped down. The art education um, scene is quite interesting. It's a, it's a um, government-sponsored system of higher education, uh, probably familiar to, not familiar to Americans where our system's utterly different, but familiar to much of the world where um, uh, students that finish high school and are of uh, college age take entrance exams and are tracked into arts programs. Uh, and um, have to earn certain scores to get into them. And there are um, state-run excellent universities with serious provenance and commitment to education in Aleppo, in Damascus, in um, Homs, in uh, many other places. So I was focusing on Damascus, the capital, because it gets the most attention, but there are um, art schools with serious engaged artists elsewhere. One thing that's quite interesting to me is that even after the, um, the popular uprising, the revolutionary uprising that was brutally put down and ushered in a, a period of very confusing civil war, Damascus remained fairly intact. University studies went on and the regime funded arts initiatives that they had promised before the uprising. So, uh, there was the unveiling and opening of a new art center that was named the Visual Arts Center that was uh, framed as a lab for more experimental practices. So um, in order to kind of continue to perform the state's investment in its own citizenry, uh, there was a commitment to continuing to develop the art scene and to develop it on the terms of the global art world, which was in less interested in painting and more interested in moving image work, uh, installation and the like. This was open to big fanfare. It had lots of like screens, uh, you know, in a gallery space to give it a sense of being uh, futuristic and not getting slowed down by the catastrophe of war. And there was also money given for workshop settings for artists, um, young artists uh, to cultivate their, um, their work. So there was just, uh, this all, arts often provide a kind of convenient um, spectacle for uh, governments to demonstrate that nothing's amiss and that they can continue to uh, care in the development of, um, of practitioners. And we definitely saw that even into the period that I was characterizing as disrupted. Um, there was still arts education. Uh, I'll just say one last thing. Very broadly, the art, art education is structured at, around a studio setting. So there'll be a kind of head teacher and 
open studio space and artists um, get, do crits. So this is a kind of common way to teach art where assignments are given and artists have a lot of, the students have a lot of free time to try to uh, generate their projects and they come back and they discursively together uh, respond to the works and um, uh, give feedback. And the cooler professors that are really treasured are the ones that don't assert hierarchy and, and cultivate a kind of horizontal space of um, discussion. And the old school ones are the ones that assert that their uh, values are the only ones that hold. So that's very common to all college settings. And it was certainly um, in place in, in these kinds of art training uh, environments that you're asking about. Um, thank you, Professor. Um, unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. Um, I'd like to invite everyone to join me to thank Professor Benson for a really engaging session today. We are exceedingly grateful that you took the time out of your busy schedule, um, especially the time difference, spend your Tuesday evening with us. Uh, to our audience, thank you very much for joining us uh, for today's uh, salon series. We hope you come away enriched with the experience from the experience and we look forward to have you, having you again for the next salon session. Um, do look out for updates on our website um, and do remember to register so we can send you the Zoom details. Um, till next time, well, do take care. Uh, thank you so safe. much. I can't imagine a better Tuesday night. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, Professor. Okay, bye.